I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. We're here to discuss... Willa Cather's 1927 novel, Death Comes for the Archbishop. It's the first book we're diving into here in 2020. Of course, it was 2021. I do not want to relive that. (laughs) It was, yeah, because 2021 is just starting out so great. It's already starting out so much better. Right, right. (laughs) So 2020, this book was on that list. So we are getting to it in 2021. But I was just about to say that it was a 2020 book on our list. And my brain then failed to make the proper connections and leaps in a way that was, you know, made any sense. But we are, of course, here to discuss this book. Um, we have a limited amount of time here on this opening episode. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about book one, which is in my edition, the vintage book looks like this to those of you, who, the two of you who can see me. It's uh, about 50 pages. Next episode, we'll do books two and three, and then we'll go on roughly a two book pace until the end. Hey, we're all using the same edition, right? On. Is this the first time that we've all been on the same edition and thus the same pagination? It's had to know. have happened another time before, but it doesn't happen often. Yeah, that's pretty rare. This is exciting. Special, special, special day. <laughs> um, I apologize now if my audio sounds terrible. I'm actually recording on an iPad and having all kinds of trouble with the technology. So I'll just sound like I'm sitting in the back of a, uh, like I'm a hobo in the back of a, uh, you know, train car. i'm going to put a little bit finer as as someone who's listening to you i would more describe it as a hobo in the back of an aluminum cave Mm. aluminum cave isn't that kind of what a foil cave train car yeah i guess it is yeah yeah Yeah, well either way I, i apologize for the uh subpar quality of my audio on this episode (laughs) thank you i appreciate that um (laughs) Heidi, I want to turn to you first because uh, as we dive right into this book, just again, because we have limited time, um, this is a book that you were particularly enthusiastic about doing. Um, Would you call this a Heidi White Heart book? I would call it a heart book. I'm crazy about this book. I love everything about this book. So I, I can't wait to talk about it with you guys. Tim, have you read this before? I have read it before. Yeah. Okay. When? Long time ago, probably fifteen years. Okay, and are you? What about the other the other books in the the can the the Cather canon? The only other thing that I've read, I read for close reads, close reads, which was Paul's story. Hmm, okay. Oh so, yeah. So you've That's never right. read O Pioneers or no. My Anthony? No. no. Yeah. I They're don't. good. Uh, okay, so Heidi, this being a hard book for you. Where did that affection come from? When did you first read it? Are you a big, are you a, are you a Cather canon? What's, we need some more alliteration. A Cather canon. <laughs> Creeper. Um, Creeper. Connoisseur. 
Connoisseur, that's so much better than Connoisseur is so much better than Creeper, but (laughs) I wouldn't put it past me. So, um, yeah, well, that's why why he's exactly that's right. That's what springs to mind. Um, I have not read much Cather until after I read this. Somebody recommended this to me, I can't remember who it was, and I picked it up because I wasn't reading anything and I just fell in love with it. And then I read more by her. Although I think I read O Pioneers in college in an American survey lit survey class, but it didn't make that big of an impression on me at the time. And then I reread it after I read Death Comes for the Archbishop and then read the whole series. Uh, mm. It's it's great. I I love, I really like her writing in general. She's so descriptive and specific and she creates, she's so good at creating um, this like lush, uh, sensual in the meaning of like using your senses kind of way, um, mental images and experience, a very like immersive sensual experience to read her novels. And I I think this one just does that so beautifully about the American West, the Southwest. Are you generally speaking a enthusiast for books about the Southwest? Because I know you you grew up in California, right? Yeah. And I live in Colorado. Uh, uh, no, I'm not. In fact, I even picked up, so like y- you love Westerns and spy novels. So I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get on this train. And so uh, now I'm into spy novels and I still just like, can't get into Westerns. Um, so no, I'm not, but she does it. Like she just, I, McCarthy does the same thing. Cormac McCarthy, he creates this like incredible uh, inner landscape uh, in the mind of the reader through his descriptions too. Um, but his are less, uh, I mean, they're just as skilled as Willa Cather, I think, but a little more like masculine, hard edge, a little more that, that has this like kind of strict irony to it that challenges and she is just has this like loving it's almost like a painter's attention to detail um like very loving strokes of words and i just i just love that so i i we're gonna we're gonna focus on that and i'm sure we'll talk about lots of passages read lots of lines that are evidence to what you're talking about there um tim so you read this remind me how, how many you said a long time like ago 15 years ago ish um so back when you were like 13, do you right. recall um, your first impression of it reading it for the first time at the age of 13? <laughs> I remember being really, I think the first time that I read it, I was expecting a a very plot driven book because of the title. I just didn't know anything about the book aside from it was one of those books that was out there in the kind of literary atmosphere that I knew that I had to read. And so I got an inexpensive copy from Oxford two books in downtown Atlanta. I'm sure which was like where most of my book purchasing came from at that time. And I was expecting, I think because of the title death comes for the archbishop. You're expecting I was, a plot death to come uh, yeah seriously i thought it was going to be like a story expecting um, a plot it's kind of a lot to ask for a novel tim <laughs> like maybe why don't you take your expectations down a notch why yeah, don't you come take on your now. expectations elsewhere tim no but like doesn't this, like doesn't maybe to this title say like we're like we're yeah i thought it was going to be a mystery like a yeah mystery. exactly yeah. maybe like a detective story or something like that 
that's not what the book is. It's mm-hmm. very episodic. And I remember walking away thinking, huh, that was really beautiful. That was not what I expected. Mm. Uh, and the detective novel part of it never showed up in that book. <laughs> just something completely different. I think it's a very so, episodic book, mm-hmm. which I'm sure we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So here you are, having read it again. Um, did did knowing that it's not a mystery novel with a detective, um, and actually now that you mention it, it really does like this could be the title of a Patricia Wentworth or Josephine Tate book, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, did, yeah. Now that you know that it's not such a thing as that, did your? I mean. I mean <laughs> How did it change Expectations reading experience? How did it change? Yeah, like this reading these first 50 pages or, or so book one and the prologue. Did, did you um, find that you were able to settle into the rhythms of the book more easily because you weren't looking for, you know, the onset of a whodunit? Definitely. It's, the pace of it is slow and methodical. It's like this long, uh, what's, a, what's a good metaphor for it? I don't know. It's just it's maybe just like sort of a, a long back ride into the desert in where a, like red like adobe hills yeah, rise right. interminably over the landscape. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Maybe like every now and then you run across just like a great beauty while at the same time it's a little sparse every now and then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then maybe you arrive in a village that isn't really a village, but there's nice people there. Yes. You're, we're just describing the close reads experience, I think. I think we are. That's exactly <laughs> what we're doing. So what if, I've, got a, oh, go I've got a question about how this book begins. Go ahead, Heidi. I was going to ask you. I don't know about your Willa Same Cather question, David. life. Yes. Okay. I've never read this book before, before this. Um, I've read everything else. Well, not everything else, but I've read, you know, O Pioneers, My Antonia. I wrote fairly extensively about uh, My Antonia in college. I wrote a couple papers on on that book, one of them was comparing them to like Cormac McCarthy or something. So I, uh, it's been a while since I've read it. It's been several years since I've read any of her books, but I've, I'm familiar with her court of, you know, canonical landscape, if you will. But um, I've never read this one. And so I had, I knew literally nothing about it when I picked it up. I've, I kind of decided I'm just not going to do any research about it other than the fact that it was written in 1927 and, you know, the kind of basic things that I need to know to introduce the book on the show. But I, so this is for me, this is one of those books where I'm just kind of diving in. I'll let you guys take me along the way, which brings me to the question that, that I was going to ask you. I have a question about how the book begins and the decision that Cather made, Cather made to, to, um, to introduce it with these three leaders in the church. And I want to talk about that in a second, but first I want to ask you, and Heidi, I'll ask you this first. For those of us who are new to this book, can we talk reading strategies, reading tips? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean like, you know, break this book down in a, you know, academic sort of way, but like to avoid being too mystified, to give ourselves the best, the best chance of enjoyment. What are some tips that you would offer people like me for diving into this book for the first time? Uh, so as Tim has listed in seven, seven sentences in, in order of importance. Okay, so you're going to get what you get and not throw a fit. (laughs) Um, A lot like parenting. Right, exactly. Um, As Tim has already mentioned, this is not a straightforward plot. Uh, This is a very episodic 
book, uh, Tim already used that word to describe it. And it is helpful, I think, to know that before you read it, especially if you're the kind of person who's going to be distracted by the fact that it's not plot driven. Um, when I first read it, I kept going back to try to f- trace a plot. I, I kind of reread as I went and I got confused and then I started over and it took me a little while to figure out, oh, this is not a story in the traditional sense of the word with like rising action and some kind of turning point. It's more uh, like a series of vignettes or memorable moments. Really, I, I think it's most like stepping stones. If you think of each little vignette as a stepping stone on the path of this man's great work in life. And, um, and each of these vignettes, each of these, it's uh, almost like a third person memoir is a little bit of how that it's structured. And I, I love that about it. It's unique. That's a great description, um, Heidi, a third person memoir. That's yeah, really it's, it, it's helpful, I think, to know that if you're going to be distracted by that um, and just to, to take each um, take each of the vignettes as a short story or a, um, you know, how you would read a memoir um, of someone's great work in life. And, and, and in that way, it's, it's not ironic. It's not undermining. I find it a very healing and soothing kind of book. We're not trying to look for some great flaw in the world through this book. It's, it's like watching pearls slip from a string. And I think if you just let that be kind of a healing thing, especially in such a fragmented world right now, um, it can, it can be a restorative reading experience. Uh, This is not a book that's looking at all the flaws in America or in the church or in, you know, colonialism, anything like that. There's plenty of books like that in the world right now that are held up uh, to be read. But this is a book about like the goodness of the building of an American life. And, and, and in that sense, I find it to be a very healing and restorative experience. I hope our readers or our listeners will too. I, it seems like there's a, as much as anything that comes from the sort of rhythms of the, the books, the book, like even the writing it has a sort of, um, you use the word healing, soothing. Mm-hmm. Like there's this, Tim used the word undulating, I think, when describing the landscape. There's a sort of undulation even to the writing that almost acts as an objective correlative as, a, as representative of what's going on in the life of this character. Um, and I've only read 50 pages, so I don't know that that's how far that goes, but that, that kind of, it kind of uh, slows you down. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, in the way that he, it's a book that teaches you. To your point, I feel like this is a book that teaches you how to read. Like it, I if you just submit to that and not try to force expectations upon it, but just linger, let your eyes linger over the descriptions, picture it in your mind, um, and and we are so used to the kind of like whistleblowing books, right? Um, and this this is a book with like a great deal of respect for native cultures and for the church and for the the time of uh the time period that it's exploring and it's so rich with description and with character and and it has like a very strong moral center to it um and but it's not preachy in any way cather was not a catholic trying to to you know, hold up this, um, it's, 
she's not trying to hold this up as like her way of thinking about the world. And that almost adds another layer of beauty to it, that she is stepping back from her own experience and presenting this uh, bishop, this Catholic missionary bishop, who's coming to evangelize native cultures and bring the church into America without disrupting the native cultures while still honoring them. That's his mission. And that's, and, and she paints this in such loving detail as an outsider to the experience, outside of her time, outside of her own faith, um, and then just honors it. And without, you know, without idealizing it, there's plenty of bad priests in the book, but uh, our hero is an actual hero. And like I said, I think that to modern readers, like, just kind of let that be, let that teach you how to read the book um, mm. instead of kind of trying to find, make it modern. Mm. You guys, I'd like to read the opening paragraph just so we can have a little taste of the kind of prose that she writes in. And also, I think it's the opening chapter, I think, is set in deliberate juxtaposition to the second chapter, the beginning of the journey. So it might just be a helpful kind of contrast. And just to clarify, you mean um, the cruciform tree, not the beginning of the prologue, right? I'm going to read from the prologue at Rome. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So beginning with one summer evening. One summer evening in the year 1848, three cardinals and a missionary bishop from America were dining together in the gardens of a villa in the Sabine Hills overlooking Rome. The villa was famous for the fine view from its terrace. The hidden garden in which four men sat at table lay some 20 feet below the south end of this terrace and was a mere shelf of rock overhanging a steep declivity planted with vineyards. A flight of stone steps connected it with a promenade above. The table stood in sanded square among potted orange and oleander trees, shaded by spreading ilex oaks that grew out of the, that grew out of the rocks overhead. Beyond the balustrade was the drop into the air, and far below the landscape stretched soft and undulating. There was nothing to arrest the eye until it reached Rome itself. I think it's like, it's really beautiful, but also very simple. It's really, there's nothing overly complex, either in the vocabulary or the structure of the sentences. Um, yet it has the, um, the kind of feel of a meandering stream, it seems to me. One of the things I really like. Sorry. Say, David. No, no, no. I was just going to say, I've never read, when I read her, I think of Hemingway. Oh, yeah. I can see um, that. And, and, you know, the, the people would view Hemingway to have a certain cynicism that Cather's work doesn't have. But in terms of the way she structures sentences, there's a simplicity to it. Like, there's a, there, were, there was a whole page where I thought this could have been from The Sun Also Rises, or it huh. could have been from one of his short stories. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 if you, if I went and found online somewhere or I was reading a Hemingway biography and he, where he wrote a letter to like Gertrude Stein or Fitzgerald or something was like that Cather, she knew what she was doing. Uh, I'd have, I'd have been, I wouldn't be surprised. It's interesting. They're both Midwesterners. They're both writing at the same period of time. You wonder if one influenced the other in some way there's there's you're you're probably right david there's something out there i know that hemingway did give her a big compliment about one of her books i can't remember what it was he really admired her style so there's clearly some um some kinship there the other thing i, I wanted to read the paragraph 
before was it seems to me like the book is set in some ways in the height of civilization. You know, it's um, it's a yeah, beautiful terrace. We have a direct view of Rome itself, which I think is a nice bit of foreshadowing because we're not going to see Rome for the rest of the book. We're, directly, we're not going to see Rome for the rest of the book. Um, and everything is organized. It's clean. It's beautiful. And the rest of the book is basically our trip into a place that is... <laughs> It's America in the 19th 19th century. It's the new world. It's not been, it doesn't have all the kind of taste of domestication yet. No, this whole, go ahead, David. I was just going to say, as you mentioned, we need to compare it with the beginning of the cruciform tree at the beginning of book one. Right. But go ahead. Before we do that, how do you go ahead and say what you were going to say? Well, I mean, that's a, it's a good transitional statement. Then the whole, the prologue is the, the height of sophistication in the old world. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it has these priests having a conversation, uh, just assuming that they should go over there and start evangelizing. Right. So there's, there is an assumption of, uh, kind of a colonial mindset, but it's not presented as being this like negative, like we're going over there to rape the land and pillage the peoples and ruin everything. Like they're, these are, these are good priests. Um, and they're living in the height, uh, or they're cardinals and they're, they are, you know, in living the good life in the old world. And they're going to send this bishop. They're going to give him a promotion. He's a priest now. They're going to give him a promotion yeah. and send him to the new world. And he's going to evangelize there. There's lots of mentions about the, like the wines that they're mm-hmm. drinking, um, the music that they're listening to. The it view, is food, the view the conversation. Right. They're talking about paintings and, there. Right. Yeah. And then even in here in book one, we get two different instances where our, main character is sort of longing or trying to recreate that we get the one where he's meeting with he meets with the family you know and he comes out of the desert and then the one where he meets with the other priest with, with the french onion soup or whatever yeah and they talk about tradition and then they open the wine and it smells just it's got a little bit of cork because they don't know how to preserve it right but they're trying to recreate the moment that is happening at the beginning of the book with the cardinals in the, they're trying to recreate it in the new world but there's Mm, not quite the capacity for it. Yeah, right, right. But to me, that how do you, you his name Latour? Mm-hmm. You think that's on purpose? Yeah, I do. Of course, I do. But I also here's what I really love about Willa Cather and why I just find her so soothing, especially kind of contrasted with the the last several books that we've read that have so many objective correlatives and so many nuances and so much subtext and, and all that. And there's something like Cather is a very descriptive and journalistic type of author. So she's not making some, we don't have to work so hard to read her. (laughs) So we don't have to look for all these like hidden clues to the meaning the same way that you do with Walker Percy. Um, You are, you can just read it and let it wash over you. And so, yeah, I think that his name is specifically chosen, but I think that's about all there is to say about it. Right. Say more about that. (laughs) Say more about the deliberately chosen. Because Latour, meaning like the the journey, the tour, right? So there's, yeah. So, so there's also the, I think in, so, okay, Chateau Latour in France is one of the most famous 
chateaus of all time. Mm-hmm. And it's one of, it's this big estate. And it was from in 1855, which is four years after, you know, book one begins one afternoon in the autumn of 1851. So four years after that, um, they began to classify the wines in France. So it's a Chateau Latour is a first growth in the 1855 classification. Interesting. And um, so it's one of the most prominent, like it's got Saint-Julien on one side and Bordeaux and Medoc, you know, there's all like all the different regions there are like all on the, I think it like is on the tip of all of them or something like that. I don't know the exact, the exact geography of it. But like it's you can get Chateau Latour. Like if we were to look it up online right now, I mean you're gonna find a cheap Chateau Latour from there for 250 bucks and wines that are up to two thousand dollars a bottle. And um, so it's one of the the great traditional French uh, vineyards. And so I yeah, she's then writing this in nineteen the nineteen twenties, right? Um, and so I, I feel like there's the tour part of it, but there's also got to be something where she's connecting it to this particular, particular preeminent, you know, uh, uh, curator and cultivator of French culture. Um, sure. Yeah, no, that's really good. And I hadn't made that connection. So I'm really glad you said that. And that is part of his inward and outer journey is learning as a missionary bishop to lay down his old life to you know, he, he can every once in a while have a really good meal, um, like on Christmas, but for the most part, it's, it's the simple rugged life and, and that's hard on him. And he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from that, but he also leans into it. So I, it's, he, he's a remarkable character and she intentionally wrote a remarkable character. And I love that. I, I just, like I said, again, that's another thing I really love about the book that she, she's just say, like, say I'm going to write that. a great man with a great soul and who's doing a so great re- work. So by remarkable character, you mean a character of great character. And you don't mean that she managed to produce a character who has, is very well drawn. No, I do mean that. But I also mean that she intentionally wrote someone at the center of this novel who is a man of good character. Like he's, um, and he's incredibly well-drawn and balanced. And I think he is a bit idealized, but he has his flaws and his inward darkness and struggles. Um, but he's, he's not an ordinary man. She makes that very clear from the first anecdote we get from him um, as he's, you know, dying of thirst in the desert. And then there's this cruciform tree and the intervening is it a miracle or is it not and his own his own spiritual journey is not swayed by that like he is he finds that um he contemplates the life of christ uh and as he's thirsting and is reminded of one of the final words of christ on the cross saying i thirst and that carries him through and so anyway what i mean but it is he she's very she draws him very well and skillfully in a literary sense but she's also writing about a remarkable man a good, good man. I think it'll be at the end of the book, really instructive for us to compare the whiskey priest from the power and the mm-hmm. glory with the priest from death comes from the archbishop, because both of them, I'm not going to give anything away because the title is death comes from the archbishop meet the end of their life in these novels. One of them lives a life um, that I think is admirable the whole way through and the struggles that he have that he has are mitigated by his holiness and his dedication toward the good 
Whereas the whiskey priests in the power in Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory struggles just to put one foot in front of the other. He struggles, you know, to not drink the wine that's the sacrament that's in his knapsack. And yet both at the end, we see the effects of both of their lives and the effects are really remarkable. I just think that will be a really interesting contrast mm. when we get to the end of this book. Yeah. And it's probably something we can look at throughout too. Yeah. As they encounter different situations. So I want to ask you guys something on the back of this book, the, the publisher included a blurb that I think is one of the better ones I've read it's from the New York times. It goes like this. From the riches of her imagination and sympathy, Miss Cather has distilled a very rare piece of literature. It stands out from the very resistance it opposes to classification. Well said. There's two parts of this that I'd like to ask you about, kind of as we're diving in. One is this notion of from the riches of her sympathy, and then the other is its resistance, it, how it opposes classification. When the, when this particular blurbist blurber whoever wrote the blurb, uh, I don't, it doesn't say who it just says it came it was in the Times it was in the Gray Lady so maybe it was the Gray Lady herself um, when uh, when they say sympathy where, how does that show up in your opinion we hear that a lot like a great novelist is someone who has sympathy for their characters or their you know they have characters who are you know they sort of um, make us sympathetic for them. How do you see that showing up in this book? Um, either of you can can jump on that first. How do you want to do it? You want to? You want to? Oh, Tim! Tim's about to talk. Right as I said, Heidi. Tim opened his mouth. <laughs> oh, no, Tim should because I've already said a lot of things. Heidi, and I do I have something to say later. Yep. One of the nice <laughs> things about recording close reads when we can see each other is that I think we've picked up enough on each other's signals that, like, I, I looked over at Heidi on Zoom and I was like, I think Heidi wants another thirty seconds to think about this. And I'm willing to just like stick my tongue out and start. Right. Sometimes you just need somebody to ramble to give people a chance to think. (laughs) It's true. The first, the the prologue, we meet highborn characters, sophisticated, educated, wealthy, old world. And in the first chapter, we meet very kind of lowborn characters. Uh, a young, a child, uh, the child's family, uneducated, not sophisticated, none of the luxuries of the old world. And I don't see Cather showing any favoritism toward one or the other. I think it'd be very fashionable to kind of condescend uh, toward the more highborn characters and, you know, emphasize how uh, bloated they are and how full of um, you know, how their sophistication has withered their hearts or something like that. But I, I don't get that from those characters at all. And I don't see anything particularly in under Kether's pen um, that is seeking to make sort of like, I don't know, like a Rousseauian figure, some sort of a, a noble savage out of these, people who live on the frontier. I don't see any effort toward that either. It seems like she does have sympathy for the lives and um, paths of both characters, both, both kind of both sets of characters. And then Heidi said, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 
unmuting herself. <laughs> um, so I love that. I love what you said. I think I, here's how I picture her sympathy in this or think of her sympathy in this novel. So if I was to write a novel with a main character as say uh, a Muslim, something mm. I'm not right. Like I'm not immersed uh, in, but in my country, right? A refugee coming to the country and integrating into the culture and dealing with all of the things that's that that's happening right now in the United States, I would be real careful, right? I might feel like very, very drawn to this particular story and this, this character, but it would take a lot of research on my part and a lot of careful thought um, and, uh, and a lot of sympathy, right? I wouldn't have the right to write about that character without some kind of... Uh, an intentional putting myself behind the eyes an intentional trying to integrate myself into that way of thinking that's foreign to me. Um, and doesn't necessarily reflect my own faith or culture. Right. And that's a perfectly valid thing to do as a novelist. It's a good idea. Like pick a culture that's not your own and write from that perspective, immerse yourself in it. And that I think is what we have in this novel. Um, this is no way a defense of Catholicism or of, of missionary work. It's, it's a descriptive uh, and sympathetic portrayal of a, uh, a character immersed in a really important time and pivotal time in American history. Uh, and she has put herself behind the eyes of what it would be like to be uh, a celibate, displaced, Catholic, young, uh, talented, um, and good-intentioned Catholic bishop, like, completely out of his elements, come into this like strange and rugged land in a culture not his own uh, and with resistance from his own church and resistance from the native peoples. And then also a great longing of the people of the land who need this priest and want the sacraments. And, and so her sympathy is evident in the fact that she has created a character and a series of characters and a series of vignettes from a different cultural perspective of her own and religious perspective of her own. And she does it very lovingly, descriptively and respectfully. And that's a really, I mean, it's like a badass thing to do. She was um, raised just a little bit about her background. She was raised Baptist. And then as an adult converted to become an Episcopalian. Um, so yeah, there's some religious differences that, are, are, are maybe don't feel as the, the line between an Episcopalian and a Catholic might not feel terribly bright to us today, but I think it during the time of the writing of this book, they would have, that would have been a very bright line. A very, a very big, big difference. difference. Yeah. Well, and she was, she was a troubled woman. Like she had, she, she had, she did convert and she, she, fought, battled her own demons throughout her life as any, you know, great, great souled human does. Um, and so, you know, we can't just picture her as this like devout religious writer. She is writing more about the American experience than she is about the religious experience, knowing that, that the religious experience of Americans is fundamental in order to understand being an American. Um, and then she's also writing about the westward expansion uh, and the appropriation and transformation of native cultures into kind of this, this 
soup of what it means to be an American in the 19th century, which is very complex. Um, and she's hard, she's honing in on one of those kind of complex dilemmas in American life. One of the, go ahead, Tim. I, it's, it's so funny for me. When I think about mid-19th century America, I think more than anything else about the Civil War. It's such, it, it, it's still the war with the most casualties. Obviously, it's the war that, um, to say the obvious, ripped the United States in half. And it's oftentimes, it's kind of easy to lose track that there was this whole part of North America that didn't like, didn't know anything about what was going on with the Civil War. You know, it's like if you were west of Texas, of course you knew about the Civil War, but all of the kind of, um, that part of the world was enmeshed in its own kind of adventures and catastrophes. Um, and so five, 10 years before our priest begins his journey, 10 years after our priest begins his journey, the civil war begins in South Carolina. And so the, during the course of the priest's life, the civil, we will kind of live through the civil war. And I think there'll be mentions, if I'm not mistaken, in the book of the civil war, but all of the terrain that the bishop is living in and on has virtually nothing to do with what is preoccupying the United States, the majority of the middle part of the 19th century. One of the things that I think is interesting about that is that it, it allows her to focus on an older history. Hmm. Like mm-hmm. she's, yep. she's writing a book about that same period that is not consumed with what was going on in the rest of the country and instead is able to, to the character, like he is very aware of the sort of ancient properties of the world he lives in, that there were people that were there before his people were there. Well, I mean, his people were the French, but before, you know, the settlers were there. And then there were people before the Spaniards got there. Right. And Mm -hmm. they're all around him is evidence of something very, very old. And in a way the civil war, well, I'm going to put this in a sort of overly simplified way. They were fighting over something new. Yeah. They were fighting over a country that was a hundred and not even a hundred years old, right. Over new economic, relatively new economic Oh, something just fell off the desk over relatively new economic realities, right? Over new questions. And what's happening in where he is, is there's this sort of battle between bringing civilization to a place that ha- that has its traditions already, you know, in, in a way that kind of mirrors almost the way the, the operation of the church, in a, in a sense. Um, we see that pop up even in the meals they have. But also it speaks to his the fact that he is solitary in an ancient land, I think heightens the, the sort of effect of his solitariness, mm. which actually brings us back to the beginning of book one and what you read the beginning of the prologue. But then at the beginning of book one, we get sort of a contrasting scene, as you said, Tim, I'll just read the beginning here. Yeah. So the beginning of part one, chapter one, or book one, part one, whatever the cruciform tree one afternoon in the autumn of 1851, a solitary horseman followed by a pack mule was pushing through an arid stretch of country somewhere in central New Mexico. He had lost his way and was trying to get back to the trail with only his compass and his sense of direction for guides. 
The difficulty was that the country in which he found himself was so featureless, or rather that it was crowded with features all exactly alike. As far as he could see on every side, the landscape was heaped up into monotonous red sandhills, not much larger than haycocks and very much the shape of haycocks. One could not have believed that in the number of square miles a man is able to sweep with the eye, there could be so many uniform red hills. He had been riding among them since early morning, and the look of the country had no more changed than if he had stood still. He must have traveled through 30 miles of these conical red hills, winding his way in, in the narrow cracks between them. And he had begun to think that he would never see anything else. They were so exactly like one another that he seemed to be wandering in some geometrical nightmare. Flattened cones they were, more the shape of Mexican ovens than haycocks. Yes, exactly the shape of Mexican ovens, red as brick dust and naked of vegetation except for small juniper trees. So I'll stop there because it goes on for a while. But it's interesting, you, know, you contrast that with what you just read, Tim, which begins one summer evening in the year 1848. Three cardinals, a missionary bishop from America, were dining together in the gardens of a villa. Yeah, right. And it goes on to how beautiful the landscape is. And so, whereas those four people, those three cardinals and a missionary bishop were we're meeting together and sharing this feast here. We've got a man and a pack mule in almost the opposite kind of landscape. Yeah. So she has now emphasized the degree to which his solitary journey um, is in contrast to what he's used to, to what so many other people are experiencing. And so it draws, it draws attention, not just to the landscape itself, but to what it would be like to be from elsewhere and then be mm-hmm. thrust into that and be alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it that sort of contrast, I think, offers us symp- a way into that sort of sympathy ourselves, because there's lots of writers who can write in a way that expresses sympathy for a character, but it's something else to bring that, to bring the reader into that sympathy, to share that sympathy with the reader, or to allow the reader to enter into that sympathy as well. And I think this kind of objective correlative, this kind of, contrasting these kind of contrasting scenes allow the reader to feel sympathy as well to be sympathetic in the way that the author is instead of just being told that the author is sympathetic Hmm. no that's good before we go too far in this book um i I feel like we should talk a little bit about the word civilization because i think all three of us have probably already used the word um and that word could be a little bit uh, troublesome. And so I'll just give kind of a thought about what I think each of us means by civilization. Part of the reason it's so important is that 20 years after this book is written, there is a big debate about what countries in the world are civilized and what countries in the world are not considered civilized. And this comes to a head during the writing of the Declaration of Human Rights. Um, So Eleanor Roosevelt, after World War II, is asked to kind of lead the writing of this statement, a universal declaration of human rights. And one of the real sticking points, if you look at the notes that are associated with kind of like the back, back scenes haggling over the Declaration of Human Rights, is the word civilization. And what countries are considered civilized and what countries are not considered civilized. And it's really interesting that the European powers, for the most, not all of the European powers, some of the European powers are wanting to sort of say that their their kind of colonial properties, which are going to be divested, which are being divested of them, 
are not civilized in the same way that they're civilized, and thus they need to sort of function um, in a sort of patrimonial way. And this is a big sticking point in the writing of the Declaration of Human Rights. So when I say civilization, and I'm in Heidi, David, tell me if you guys are thinking about it in a different way. I'm thinking the old world that we kind of get thrown into in the prologue is a world in which um, things like universal literacy are just taken for granted. Every school child that is raised in Rome is expected to be able to learn to read and write by the time they are, whatever, you know, 12 years old. So universal literacy would be one of the hallmarks of what we're talking about as civilization. Um, Whereas in the kind of world that our priest is going into, universal literacy is far from an expectation. Um, And I think other things would kind of denote civilization. Um, I think more advanced uses of technology are going to be much more present in the old world than they are in the new world. So I don't, I, I just hope that listeners don't hear anything like, oh, by civilization, you mean like there's a value uh, that civilized people are superior to uncivilized people. I don't think that Willa Cather ever asserts anything like that in the book. And that's like one of the great gifts of the book. And of, of course, Heidi and David and myself are not going to try to assert anything like that. It's So when we right. do talk about civilization, um, we're just talking about there are certain aspects of culture that have had the benefit of germinating for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, whereas on the frontier in North America, those are not yet, universal literacy is not really a possibility as of yet. It will be soon, but not as of yet. In fact, I think one of the things that all of her books, I shouldn't say that, a lot of her books are about are people who want to bring what is ostensibly civilization to places that already have a kind of culture. Exactly. Mm. And so how does what what is called civilization by people that look like three of us, what is that? What does it mean when that runs up against a different sort of culture that they would not consider civilized, but has its own traditions already? Um, I think that's a, a key part of even like uh, my Antonia, for example, and O Pioneers. Heidi, go ahead. You were going to say something, I believe. Yeah. Well, and this book is different from those books in that, um, in, and she she runs the gamut. But in this particular book, we do have a contrast between two old worlds and one new world, right? So we've got the old Mexico and mm. the new Mexico. And then we have Europe and the Vatican and the new and New Mexico, right? And so there's there's this three-way kind of contrast and struggle. Um, and then mediating that particular struggle is Bishop Latour and Father uh, Villon, which I, or Vion, which I did look this up. I also looked up how to pronounce Auvergne. Well so I'm done. myself because I never know how to pronounce things. And, I'm not, and so I didn't want to be caught having to say Vion and not knowing how to say it. So I looked it up. Um, because like every sadly underinformed <sighs> American person, I was like, violent. And I'm like, that's <laughs> not right. So 
Valence. I knew it was wrong and I looked it up. So um, anyway, there she's written these two characters, these central characters, as attempting to mediate, sometimes successfully and sometimes not, but they are well-intentioned towards both the old world and the new world. However, there's plenty of conflicts that are played out in these episodic, in these episodes that we encounter along the way. And that's part of the intention, I think, in, in, uh, from, well, from Willick. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Heidi, how's it going over there? What's going on? I have derailed. Um, we'll gather. Um, because I want to say Cather so badly, but it's it rhymes with gather. Cather. Cather. So anyway, Willa Cather has written Just all of these Cather episodes. And you won't yes. forget again. <laughs> well, that would be Cather. So we have to think gather. It's so hard. Every time, so Heidi, every time you're about to say C-A-T-H-E-R, you're kind of having to do like a little hiccup. And I am doing, Willa thank you Gather, for saying Cather. that. Is that what's going on? Cather, Willa, that is what's going Gather, on. Cather, yeah. So, man, this is, this is hard work for me. So, Willa Cather has written this series of episodes in which uh, we have this mediating force uh, in Bishop Latour and... Father Vaillant. Well done. Um, and, and then the conflicts, these fissures and fragments and conflicts uh, between the new world and the old world as played out in various situations within this novel. And it becomes a pretty complex contemplation um, between cultural issues and religious issues and um, how successfully this is being done or has been done. Um, but you're right. I think she has this great fascination with the American experience of being the new world and having to wrestle and reckon with the old world. Uh, but we do have characters that are well-intentioned towards that. And then we also have some characters who aren't um, that show up in these episodes. Okay. So we don't have a lot of time left, but I did want to ask you, um, one of the things we have not really talked about is like, this is, this is a sort of plot oriented question. So it doesn't necessarily fit this book. But when we often think about books, one of the ways that you can, that can help you read it is to think, well, what's, what is the thing that has, this character has to overcome? Even if there's not a plot, there's a there's sort of series of things that have to be overcome or desires that character, characters have that help us get to know them and help make them rich, right? Tim, when you read this book, how do you think about that, that point of view? Like, is there something in this book that's clearly to you that's the motivating factor for this character oh. that is that is leading towards something that has some kind of conflict or something that has to be overcome. There's been little hints of, you know, bad priests and people not necessarily believing him and stuff like that. But through 50 pages, it's just a series of vignettes that doesn't have a clear through line of conflict. And thus it's sometimes hard to tell what the through line of desire is or the through line of motivation. Yeah. So yeah. how do you kind of approach this book from that perspective? I think that our main character seeks more than anything else to be faithful and faithfulness for him is faithfulness to the office that he holds he's a priest he's a priest in the new world he's a priest on the frontier and so faithfulness means a variety of different things it doesn't just mean personal individual piety which he's going to struggle with that he's going to be really lonely right 
And so remaining faithful as an individual, remaining pious as an individual is, of course, going to be a struggle, but he's going to need to be faithful with regards to how does he handle disputes with openly rebellious priests, which we know from the prologue, this is already something that they're worried about in Rome. Um, how does he remain faithful despite like all the amenities that he gave up uh, that now he doesn't have? Just his like physical life is going to be harder. How does he remain faithful? So I think if there's, a, I think there is a through line. That through line is how do I remain faithful, and how do I execute my office, the office of the priest, in this in this kind of like despite the multifarious demands that are going to be placed upon me. Um, while I have taken on this this tremendous task. I love that you mentioned the idea of faithfulness because I think in this first section, she's juxtaposing faithfulness with solitude in a really mm. interesting way because you have, for example, he stops and prays. He sees like a, a, a bush or something in the shape of a cross, right? Yeah, yeah. And he stops and he prays for like 30 minutes or something like that. And so she's she keeps juxtaposing the idea of his devotion his faithfulness, his faithfulness, his prayer life, his spiritual um, aptitude, even um, his priestliness, juxtaposing that against solitude. So it's really interesting that you, you point out that that's in a way part of how we can, like something that's going to point us towards the conflicts the rest of the novel. I'd never thought about that like that. But it's clear that she's wanting us to see both of those things because all his moments of faithfulness so far, no, I mean, not all, but so many of them are about him being alone in a desert when things are looking bleak yeah. and yet being faithful. And so at the beginning of the book, we're seeing a character who despite his solitude is faithful. So then the question is, how does he maintain that faithfulness throughout a life that is marked by loneliness and solitude? And thus that loneliness and solitude is going to get more difficult at times. Yeah. Heidi, you were going to say something, I think. No, I just really like that. I think that that's uh, an important part of the his personal inner journey as he, as he does his great work. Um, and that it's almost continually like feast or famine with solitude and people. When he arrives in a place as we see here with, when he goes to that, um, Agua Secreta, I think is, is what it's called. Um, the hidden water valley. I'm not though. I didn't get gather. Um, gather. Thank you. Yeah, I just thought of it, gather, gather. Um, that when he goes, he's all alone, he's dying of thirst, and he's lost in this harsh landscape. Um, and then he arrives in this beautiful valley where he's refreshed and also needed. Um, yeah. When he gets there, they've got like, they're just like, please marry us. Give us, give us the sacraments, baptize our babies, take confessions. Right. So he is then flooded with people. And uh, it's very clear that he has kind of a fastidious nature. Right. And so that is also part of his journey, the solitude and then kind of being overrun by the needs of the people in this land. Um, uh versus his own inclinations um, versus again, the expectations that are placed on him by the old world and what is he producing and is he building churches and is he, how, you know, how many people are being converted and all those kinds of things that go along with the business of being a bishop. Um, and these, these things all kind of converge on him in various ways. Um, and, and he has to figure out how, as you've already said to him, how to be faithful. Well, <laughs> 
Tim, speaking of being faithful, it has to go before too long here. We've got to be faithful to our promises about how much time we're going to use. <laughs> so, so um, let's, let's go, I guess, kind of wrap this up with looking towards some final thoughts as we dive into book two, or if there's anything else that you wanted to point out that you really loved in, in uh, book one, we'll call this kind of like a, a final thoughts. You have the floor to talk about whatever you want. Tim, do you want to go first? I'll go first. Um, I, I just want to echo what we've said a couple times in the show in preparation for reading the book. Uh, I, I would choose, I would, I would recommend that readers sort of think of the book as a series of almost discrete chapters um, in a person's life. So imagine that David, we looked at your, like the photo album of you when you were, you know, 25, 30, 32. And that's what we're getting. We're getting kind of like flashes of like crucial moments in this man's life. And part of the job as the reader, I think, is to step back at the end of the book and kind of say, was this man's, did he live a worthy life? Did he end up, was he successful in his desire to live a life of faith? Um, But I think that is the task of the end of the book. At present, enjoy the different kind of like photo albums that we're getting of this man. It's interesting that you mentioned that because, and I'll make this my final thought, when reading it and realizing, okay, this is a series of vignettes, my first question then becomes, so she's writing about this guy's life, like a long stretch of this guy's life, and she is making choices about the scenes in this guy's life that she turns to. So like, for me, one of the questions then becomes, what is the thread that ties these vignettes together that caused her to choose to write about this particular moment? Because our lives are made up of millions of moments, yeah. right? Yeah. So she chose, you know, say 150 to write about. I don't know what the exact number is, but what is the thread that that ties them together, that unifies them? Because we know she's a gifted novelist, right? They're not just, they may seem vignette. They may seem like vignettes that are not plotted and that may be true, but there's still going to be something that ties them together. So that's the kind of question that I'm reading with as yeah. we dive into book two. Could I say one more thing about that? Yeah, David? please. I mean, I, I think... When you read the Old Testament and New Testament, the amount of time that's actually covered in the Old Testament is, we're talking about not hundreds of years, like a couple of thousand years, right? But the amount of actual um, sort of, let's call it reporting that we get is just like sands of the hourglass. And I remember hearing a theologian describe the Old Testament as sort of um, flashes of dramatic action. Flashes of dramatic action. So of the 2,000 years, let's say, that the Old Testament covers, the number of actual years that we get to view, I don't know, less than 100? You know, we just don't see that much. And I think this book, I'm not saying that Cather is is like mimicking in some way the Old Testament kind of like mode. I don't think that she's doing that, but I do think there's kind of a similarity there that we're going to see flashes of dramatic action in the priest's life. And there's going to be a long like periods of silence in between. So for example, between the prologue and chapter one, three years pass. You know, we don't hear anything about the priest. We don't hear anything about Rome. Just three years pass. They're silent. And then we pick up again 
1851 or whatever it is, and a flash of dramatic action, the man arriving, you know, traveling across the country and arriving at his first village. And then there's that moment where it's like, uh, we're told about how long it's been thousands of miles. He, he travels, he gets to that place where there's water. He has dinner with those people. And the next thing you know, it's Christmas dinner or something like that. And he's back yeah. in town. Yeah. She, she, she makes it seem like it's gonna be a book about a journey. And then the, then the journey's just over and she's on mm-hmm. to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me wonder if she's trying to create the impression of a memory novel. Huh. Um, where the way that we remember things is sometimes a little bit scattered and a little bit, um, you know, like if you were to look back at your life with a certain sort of theme in mind, trying to, how the things would pop up in your mind are not always, it wouldn't be predictable. Yeah. Heidi, what about you? Final thoughts? Uh, I'm going to read a short section from another book um, that reminded me of this. Uh, This is from the aviator, which was my number one book of 2020. Um, And the context of what I'm about to read is that the, protagonist, the main character of the novel, Inakenti, who has been, um, who is woken up from amnesia and his memories are coming back to him. It's 1999 in the setting of the, or in the present day. And he wakes up from being in amnesia and his memories come back to him and they are from the turn of the century, born in 1900. And so part of the story is figuring out how that happened. How can a man wake up in 1999 but have been born in 1900? And he's 30 years old mm. uh, physically. Um, and so he's being interviewed by a media outlet right now to try to, you know, get get inside the mind of this man. Um, and the interviewer is asking him questions about his impressions of the past, and he can't answer them. Um, and because the interviewer is asking the wrong questions. So here is the this, this segment. Um, and this is Inakinti speaking. And he's saying, you have to understand that even the sounds were different then. Ordinary street sounds. The clopping of horses completely disappeared from life. And if you take motors, those sounded different too. Back then, there were single shots from exhaust fumes. Now, now there's a general rumbling. Oh, and I forgot something important. Nobody shouts now. Before, though, junk dealers shouted and the tinsmiths and the women selling milk, too. Sounds have changed a lot. The interviewer replied, sounds, though, that's only half of it. I think words changed. That's what's important. They changed, didn't they? I suppose, I answered, I suppose some changed. It's just that it's easier to get used to new words than to new sounds or, let's say, smells. I keep trying to draw you out on historical topics, the interviewer laughed. And you keep talking about sounds and about smells. Blood rushed to my head. Oh, how it rushed. Do you really not understand that this is the only thing worth mentioning? You can read about words in a history textbook, but you cannot read about sounds. Do you know what it means to be deprived of those sounds in one instant? That's my favorite page in my favorite novel. (laughs) (laughs) This idea that you can, you can, step back and analyze a trajectory of history and you can put jargon on it and you can, you can try to understand the historical context. But when you're talking about a human life, the things that shape you are the way things sound and smell like all of us right now in this great trial of our lives, we're not sitting around, you know, thinking about the, 
you know, maybe we are in a certain sense, but for the most part, our suffering is not in like the, these jargonated words and these ideas of the historical context. They're just in like, I can't go to my favorite restaurant and I can't be with my family on Christmas. And I haven't seen my friends. I haven't been connected. Like there's, these are the things, the, the way things smell and taste and like. touch. Exactly. I can't get that anymore. And it's not, you know, sometimes that's petty, but most of the time it's just, we're dealing with the great historical things, but how that manifests is in the kind of toilet paper we buy and whether or not we can go to the restaurant with our friends. Right. And, and that is, that's what makes a human life. And that's why I love Willa Cather. Like, I love this novel because it's that. It's how things look and how things smell and how things taste. And I, I feel like the way that the, her descriptive voice uh, gives me a greater sense of the history of the time than reading a history book about it. And that is so very meaningful. And I think that's the purpose, one of the great purposes of, of a novel is is how things smell and how things look and how things sound. Not the great kind of like sweeping historical philosophy. Those things are important, but they're manifested in the little things, um, the sensual things. And I think Willa Cather just really nails it in this book about, about that, specifically about the landscape of the West um, and that struggle between the old world and the new world. That's great, Heidi. Yeah, that's really interesting. I heard a quote, uh, narrative is the only science of the particular. Yes. It's real, always, I wish I could remember. Poetry too. I think poetry too, but I agree. Right. Yeah. I mean, to your Mm -hmm. point, Heidi, it's not, what are, what are, what's the, um, what are the historical themes that we find in, you know, like what what Willa Cather is going to do because she's such an accomplished novel is, when we step out the front door into the street in the small village, what's the first thing we're going to smell? Mm-hmm. Horse flesh. In all likelihood, it's going to be horse flesh. You know, that's what we all would have smelled at that time. And she's taking us back toward that in like the same way that like, um, mm-hmm. we're going to remember all these particulars of what it was like to live in COVID, what it was like to live when the Capitol was stormed. We're going to remember all these particular things. And she's kind of like transporting us back into that. Right. Yeah, I mean, our memories are determined by so much by our senses. Like they're like our senses are markers for moments, um, and that's which a might good be thing, right? And that might be one of the things that she's doing with this episodic. Like, like I mentioned the memory novel thing, right? Like, maybe that's how she's marked. Like these moments are being marked by senses by the way his senses experience something because that's how he would remember them. Like if you're getting into the limited perspective of this, of this uh, character, well, with that, we got to go. Cause as I said, Tim's, we got to be faithful to our promises to Tim and his time. <laughs> so uh, this has been fun. We'll dive into books two and three of Willa Cather, Willa Gather Cather's uh, death comes for the archbishop next time. Um, don't forget about, Patreon show, patreon.com slash close reads. We've got some sweet show swag and we're going to have new, uh, new things up for 2021. So we'll have some announcements about some things like that coming here soon. But of course we are uh, coming to the end of the fellowship of the ring. And then that will take us into the two towers. So if you are, um, 
interested in joining us for the Lord of the Rings conversations, please do. Again, it's patreon.com slash close reads. As always, you can get in contact with us all kinds of places, including the Close Reads discussion group uh, on Instagram and by email on closereadspodcast at gmail.com. That's it for now. Uh, So for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.